Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. Hey, this is Chris Kimball, and I need your help. We're working on a story about the battles we all have in our home kitchens. Maybe you're tired of your partner telling you how to cook, or maybe they always leave a mess, or maybe you're frustrated by your loved one's highly restrictive diet. We want to hear about your kitchen dramas, from the biggest food fights to your everyday grievances. You can leave us a voicemail at 617-249-3167, 617-249-3167, or send a voice memo to radiotips at 177milkstreet.com. One more time, call us at 617-249-3167, or email us a voice memo at radiotips at 177milkstreet.com. Please include your name and where you're calling from. And thank you. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for downloading this week's podcast. You can go to our website, 177milkstreet.com, to stream our television show, get our recipes, or take our free online cooking classes. Enjoy the show. This is Milk Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Today we're chatting with Aron Sanchez. He's chef, cookbook author, also judge on Chopped and Master Chef. He's well known for his modern approach to Mexican cooking, also for encouraging and promoting Latino chefs. You know, I can't tell you how many times I go to restaurants in all my travels and inevitably, you know, somebody from Latino descent comes from the kitchen and says, can I get a photograph? Can I talk to you, you know, because you represent us. So now the message and the mission has changed so much from when I started. Also coming up, we share a recipe for Norwegian salmon. And later on, Dan Pashman defends picky eaters. But first, it's my interview with Robert Simonson, who writes about cocktail spirits, bars and bartenders for The New York Times. His new book is called The Martini Cocktail. Robert, welcome to Milk Street. Well, thank you. Uh, The Martini Cocktail, a meditation on the world's greatest drink with recipes you write when a youthful waiter brought you one to your table. You describe it as the cocktail had an unappetizing, lukewarm look to it. It made me shudder. Mustering up a starchy hauteur I didn't know I possessed, I turned to the poor waiter and said, quote, excuse me, but I think this is undrinkable. So for starters, you take martinis uh, seriously. 
Yes, I, I even took them seriously back in uh, 1991 when I really didn't know anything uh, about them. That's when that incident occurred. And uh, I just knew instinctively that um, you should take a martini seriously and you should worry about how it's made. So what was wrong with it? It wasn't cold enough. Yeah, I, I watched it get warmer from across the dining room. So um, indeed, when I researched this book, that was one of the uh, main things that I was reminded of that more than any other cocktail, the martini needs to be ice cold. So uh, I'm an old-fashioned fan, um, and there's the sweet, there's the bitters, the amount of ice, a lot of things to talk about. A martini is a relatively simple concept. Is that why it's such a classic? I think it's a classic in that on the surface it's simple, but within that simplicity there's a lot of complexity. You only have three ingredients. You have gin, and vermouth, and uh, classically orange bitters, and then you just have the twist to worry about, or, or an olive. But people forget that uh, gin is an incredibly complex spirit. Uh, it has many, many botanicals in it, and vermouth is even more complex. So when you put those together, uh, you're tasting a lot of things. Uh, anytime you have a, a, a well-made martini, you're probably tasting 15 or 16 things at once. Hmm. And I think that is part of what keeps people uh, fascinated. So let's assume I'm, I'm a uh, beginning bartender. You're giving me a lesson on making the perfect martini. What are the things you absolutely have to do right? And what are the things you absolutely do not want to do wrong? I would say a couple things that are very important. One is to... Uh, Stir it a long time over ice to get that proper chill. You do want it to be cold, and you also want it to be diluted. This is a very strong drink, so you want it to spend a little time on the ice because water, like every cocktail, is actually part of the recipe. Um, another thing I would stress that you should stir a martini as opposed to shake it. They'll both end up cold, but there is no reason to shake a martini because uh, there's no citrus in there, or there's no milk or egg or anything that's difficult to integrate. It's, it's straight alcohol, and you just need to stir it. Uh, let's do the history. So the first time the recipe shows up is probably in the 1880s, something like yes. that. But you have a wonderful chapter about lies, lies, and more lies about origin stories. Could you just take us through with some of those uh, fictitious origin stories? Sure. Um, a couple of them have it being born on the West Coast. One says it was born in the town of Martinez. And a lot of people think that the martini evolved from a similar drink called the Martinez. Hmm. Um, and so the city of Martinez says this is how this happened. And then there is another theory that took place in New York City at the Knickerbocker Hotel, which still stands in Times Square. This took place in the 1910s. And supposedly the drink got its name because the bartender's first name was Martini. I go into some depth in the book as to why none of these theories actually make any sense. Uh, but they continue to uh, have a life. It's because people don't like a vacuum. You know, they want there to be an origin story of the Martini. So the truth is it just sort of arrived in the 1880s in a bartender's manual, but nobody really knows how it got its start. I think it's likely that it was probably invented by a number of bartenders at the same time. The critical ingredient in the early martinis was vermouth. Vermouth was not a common thing in the United States at that point. It was um, imported and drunk in Italian communities in large cities in the United States, but it was not 
common. Starting in the 1870s and 1880s, we saw a lot more vermouth in the United States. And bartenders have always been very creative people. So when you have a new ingredient, you start putting it with other ingredients and see if you can come up with a new cocktail. You must care deeply about the brand of gin and vermouth. Well, when I'm making a martini, I tend to lean towards the uh, London Dry brands that have been around a long time. Labels like Beefeater and Tanqueray and Plymouth Gin and Bombay Gin. If you're spending you know, more than $40 on your bottle of gin, you're, you're probably doing it wrong. And it's even harder to spend a lot of money on vermouth. Ver- vermouth is dirt cheap. So would you view me, people like me, who are old-fashioned aficionados, as sort of cocktail knuckle-draggers? <laughs> because it sounds to me like you're saying, and I understand, the martini is a very subtle drink. But when you get to a sugar cube and a bunch of bitters in an old-fashioned, it's not as subtle as the martini. So the martini is at the apex of the pyramid for subtle cocktails? No, no, I would never say that. Um, I actually wrote I wrote a book in 2014 called The Old Fashioned, so obviously I have as much affection for the old-fashioned as the martini. And there's, there's nothing, nothing uh, knuckle-dragging about ordering that drink. Uh, there's a lot of sophistication in that drink. Now, someone once told me the Old Fashioned is called the Old Fashioned because it was the original mixed drink. Is that right? The original name for the drink is the Whiskey Cocktail. The Whiskey Cocktail goes back to, uh, like, the late... Uh, 1700s. And it was just whiskey and bitters and sugar and water. And then then you flash forward to the 1870s or 1880s and bartenders are are trying to improve the drink and they're putting in a touch of absinthe, putting in a touch of curacao, you know, thinking that they're making a better drink. And the customers got tired of this. And so they started asking for an old-fashioned whiskey cocktail. Huh. Oh, and I didn't know. Later, that. that became abbreviated to just "I'll have an old-fashioned." Oh, that's interesting, as I've 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 heard that rumor for twenty years, and you cleared it up. So, so finally, I go to a bar and I order mm-hmm. a martini. Do you just order a martini, or do you actually offer more information? You should offer more information, but you don't really have to because the moment you order a martini, if it's a good bar, you're going to get the questions anyway. The first thing the bartender's going to ask you is gin or vodka. Then he's going to ask you up around the rocks and Oliver Twist because the the bartender doesn't want to get it wrong and have to make it over again. But when I go into a bar, I just like, you know, I I cut through all that and I say I'd like a, uh, a gin martini, three to one, up with a twist. It doesn't take much time. Uh, Robert, thank you so much for being on Mill Street. It's been a, a great pleasure. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you so much. That was Robert Simonson, author of The Martini Cocktail, a meditation on the world's greatest drink with recipes. It's time for my co-host Sarah Moult and I to answer your culinary questions. Sarah is, of course, the star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on Public Television, also the author of Home Cooking 101. So, Chris, before we take the first call, tell me about your first food memory as a child. My first fascinating food memory from my point of view was making I was eight or nine years old I baked a chocolate cake with seven minute icing it was either out of joy or it was out of Fanny Farmer it's one of those classic books we had lying around we only had three cookbooks in the house at the time and uh, it was my first real you know baking project how'd it come out the chocolate cake actually came out pretty well you know this was not a box mix this is all from scratch 
And uh, the seven-minute icing, which you know is a little dicey to make, came out like snot. I mean, it, it, oh, it was just no. like snot. And so, I, no, I carried on, you know, unperturbed, as Julia would do, iced the cake and brought it out. And this is a great case of why there are times when parents should lie to their children. Because it started my career, really. I mean, my parents had a great cake, everything else. And I was so proud of myself. And that actually was what is a moment when I really thought, you know, I really like baking and cooking. Uh, and if they'd said, look, what is this snot on this chocolate cake, I, I'd be an accountant. Today. Yeah. Oh, so, dear. Well, yeah. that's a good story. See, so lie or, or a white lie sometimes is, is just a good fine. Thing. Yeah. It's a good thing. Wow. Okay. Let's take some calls. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Emily from Virginia Beach. Hi, Emily. How can we help you today? Well, I was wondering if you had any suggestions for making just a really wonderful homemade ketchup. My um, father-in-law's birthday is coming up, and he loves ketchup. I can't emphasize that enough. So I thought that would be a great thing to get for him because he is a man who has everything. So if you had any suggestions, that would be great. Well, I do have some suggestions. I'm I'm just concerned about one thing, which is, as somebody who is a ketchup lover myself, I used to drink it out of the bottle when I was a kid, literally. We don't know everything they put in it, but we do know they put tomatoes, sugar in some form. I think it could be corn syrup, um, vinegar, salt, spice. But I think we sort of like ketchup the way it tastes. It's one of those silly things. So you're going to make something that's going to be probably much more designer and much more interesting and probably much more depth of flavor and probably much less sweet. Are you sure he's still going to like it? That was going to be my follow-up. Maybe simple is better. (laughs) Well, let me just say that at this time of year, I would go with canned tomatoes, Italian plum canned tomatoes that you would use to make a really nice tomato sauce, and also some tomato paste as well to boost it. Chop them up, uh, cook them with some onion and garlic, and then take a bunch of spices, put them into um, cheesecloth, tie it up and put it in so you can lift it out easily. But cinnamon, allspice, cloves, peppercorns, mustard seeds, and just simmer it for a bit with some a little bit of brown sugar, a little bit of cider vinegar. I think there's a good recipe on Epicurious. And then remove the uh, cheesecloth bag of spices, puree the whole thing, and then see what the consistency looks like. And if it's not thick enough, then simmer it down. And don't forget the salt. Years ago, someone who worked for me worked on a homemade ketchup recipe. And Mm -hmm. I distinctly remember this is one of the few times when we just failed. There's certain products that actually are ideal in their natural supermarket state. People become addicted. Yeah, or or Angostura bitters. I mean, there's just a few things that there's really no point. I guess the question is, is there something else he loves in food like vinegar? Is there some other product you could make homemade where you could actually make something better than store-bought? Or, or is ketchup his one and only condiment of choice? Ketchup is his funny thing. Okay. He'll get it out of steakhouse even and... We just tease them about it. But well, that's okay, too. Look, I would just make it. It's not going to be the same as what comes in the bottle. But the It'll fact better, that you took the time. You. So the fact that you went to all this trouble to research, I think is terrific. I mean, it's a great Aww. gift. I would just do it. If it's not perfect, who cares? You took the effort. Yeah, I think it shows love. Yes. And that's what matters. I think that's right. <laughs> One thing before we go. I do remember cloves was an essential element in the recipe. 
And I okay. think she actually steeped cloves in oil or something to get that flavor. So when you do it, I think that was the one thing we found, that cloves were kind of a key ingredient. But, you know, just make it and he'll love it. Just do it. Okay. Good for That's you. awesome. Thank you guys so All right. much. Okay. Take care. You too. Bye. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, it's Mike. Hey, Mike, where are you calling from? Traverse City, Michigan. Okay. How can we help you? Several months ago, I bought a Zinner butcher that I wasn't familiar with, and they had what they called a dairy tenderloin, three and a half pounds in a cryovac sealed wrapping. Yeah. You know, so I asked the butcher, is this any good? And he says, well, that's what we use to make our kebabs. And the neat thing was it was like $8 a pound. So three and a half pounds, 30 bucks, brought it home, cut it up, and used about a pound and a half to make kebabs, marinated it in a Mediterranean mix, hot grill to medium rare, and went to eat it, anticipating, you know, a great you know, <laughs> meal. And, and it wasn't. <laughs> Well, that's why I'm calling. You know, it ended up having a livery, yep. liver taste texture. Shocking. I mean, a dairy cow's four or five years old. She stopped producing milk. Or older. Uh, and then they're sent off to the slaughterhouse because there's money in that. Uh, compare that to an 18-month-old or maybe two-year-old, but fairly young, uh, let's say Angus or something else, beef cattle. They are grained up in the last few months. Their diet's better. Uh, they're younger. Uh, the breed is better for meat than a dairy cow, which is bred for milk production. So basically, it's totally different meat. Traditional beef, the majority of it in this country is finished the way Chris explained, with grain, which is not really all that normal for that animal. But it gives it, it fattens it up. I I think uh, beef finished with grain tastes better than pure grass-fed anyway. Grass-fed is going to be a little stronger. Well, that's that's where yeah. I'm going with this. I think dairy cows are grass-fed. so Silage-fed, yeah. Yeah. And you know what? You might want to have this conversation with your butcher. Yeah. What I wanted to say was one way to get around livery taste, which we used to do when I worked in a restaurant with venison, was to soak it in milk. Okay. Like overnight. Okay, make a suggestion. I, I think you should buy, like go to Costco or one of those places Get a tenderloin and then buy his dairy beef tenderloin and just do a taste Side by side. Yeah, and I think you'll see a huge difference. Well, I think he already has, clearly. I mean, I I think it's just because it's a dairy cow versus beef cattle. Right, yeah. One last thing. The round, in my opinion, it always tastes livery. Interesting. I don't like the round. Yeah. I think it's just, it's dairy meat. Yeah. That's just not going to be great. And, And grain, finishing with grain really does make it better product. So finishing with grain is a better solution yes. than all it's grass. It's not good for the environment, I, though. I, I've raised my own beef, Angus, and I've raised them fully grass-fed and then finished with grain. I can tell you the fully grass-fed is tougher and stronger. It's an acquired taste. Definitely. I will agree. Yeah. It's definitely a different taste. But so, I would just stay away from the dairy beef. Or if you do it, soak it in milk overnight. So next time I'm in the area, I will quiz the butcher. Okay. All right. Well, thanks, Mike. Mike. Thanks for calling. Very interesting topic. I appreciate your help. Thanks. Take Bye. care. Bye-bye. This is Mill Street Radio. If you have a cooking question, please give us a call, 855-426-9843. One more time, 855-426-9843, or email us at questions at MillStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Mill Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Maxine. Hi, Maxine. Where are you calling from? Bridgeport, Connecticut. I'm... Uh... 
originally from Rhode Island, and we always had probably not very good, but brown bread in cans, along with the B&M baked beans in cans when I was growing up. And I really wanted to make it. And I opened up recipes recently, and they all call for a one-pound coffee can. And I went looking for that and realized coffee doesn't come in one-pound cans anymore. So I started to hunt for a substitute, but I was wondering what you would suggest. I've actually made this recipe a few times. We uh, should explain to everybody but brown bread is. It's a steamed bread. It's and a, it's sweet. Molasses. It's a it's sweet. It has molasses. molasses and raisins. Yes, yeah. and it's got a mix of flours. It's quite good. It's very moist. You could use, there's lots of 14-ounce cans out there. Tomatoes come in 14-ounce cans, lots of other things. Coconut milk. Right. Uh, you could use probably three of those, would probably work. You might use a 28-ounce can of tomatoes. That would probably work as well. You could probably mm-hmm. even steam it in a regular loaf pan. I don't know what the size of the pan would be, depending on your recipe, but a loaf pan would probably work. But I would try three 14-ounce cans. That probably would do it. Then you have three cute little mini <laughs> brown <laughs> breads, you know? I mean, you know. Well, what about a pudding mold, a good old-fashioned pudding mold? Yeah. So yeah. I just did buy, because I, I got in this kick of making Turkish coffee, and you buy ground coffee for that. And I did buy a can of ground Italian coffee. Was it a pound, though? It looked like it was about that size. And I think it was a metal can. It was a yellow metal can. I think they might exist out there. I think they do. They're just not a pound. So if you're working with a smaller can, you have to figure out how much less you're going to add since you're steaming it. Well, the 14 ounces will do it. I think there's actually a recipe you can get for that on Serious Eats. You know, search for it on Serious Eats. I think there is a recipe for that. And I also, when I was fooling around with recipes, I tried to make it in the Instant Pot, and it was fabulous. It worked great there, just 45 minutes on high pressure. That's good to know. And was was it in a can in the Instant Pot? Yeah. I tried it in a one-quart Pyrex baking dish, and that was fine, but I didn't like the shape. So then I, you know, just like you said, started fooling around with vegetable cans different sizes. Well, good. But the Instant Pot was just 45 minutes, you know, instead of two, two hours. hours yeah, we, we just did a book of recipes for the Instant Pot. And at first, everyone in the kitchen was like, come on, we don't really want to do this, you know. And at the end of the project, we all just fell in love with it. So, really? You know, we actually made pasta in the Instant Pot. I'm going like, this is nuts. What's the time savings? Yeah. I've but done that too. I've made good. everything in it. You know, it's a slow cooker. It's a pressure cooker. It also sautés in it. You know, it's... It's better to have a skill on a stovetop, but you can do everything in it, and it forces you to organize your meal prep, and it's pretty good. So I'm a convert. All right. All right. Maxine, thank you so much. Thank you, Maxine. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. Bye-bye. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Up next, we chat with Chef Aaron Sanchez. That and more after the break. Hey everyone, I've been on the go recently. Phoenix, Kansas City, Chicago. If you're like me and have a home but aren't always at home, you have an Airbnb. Hosting your home or a spare room is a very practical side hustle. If you live in a big game town, you can Airbnb your place for fans to stay in. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. 
flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at UH1.com. You know, wonderful pistachios have become my go-to snack. Now, I could list all the health benefits. They're a good source of protein, fiber, and unsaturated fats. But for me, flavor comes first. And that's why it's pistachios, not peanuts, in our household. Wonderful pistachios come in a variety of flavors and sizes, including sea salt and vinegar, chili roasted, and smoked barbecue. Check out wonderfulpistachios.com to learn more. That's wonderfulpistachios.com. This is Mostly Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Chef Aron Sanchez is well known for his appearances on MasterChef and Chopped, as well as for his restaurant in New Orleans, Johnny Sanchez. His new memoir is Where I Come From, Life Lessons from a Latino Chef. Aaron, welcome to Milk Street. Well, thank you for having me. Delighted to be here. You know, I really loved your book for a lot of reasons, but one of them is there's a theme in here, a subtext about death. Um, you lost your father when you were 13. You want to tell us a little bit about him because he sounded like a, a pretty interesting guy. Yeah, he was he was well uh, ahead of his time. He was from a town called Valentine, Texas, which I think in its heyday probably had a total of 200 people. His mother, my grandmother, was uh, of American Indian descent. She actually was illiterate. And uh, his father... Francisco, he actually had worked on the railroad on, on trains for about 50 years, doing everything from laying track to actually working on the trains themselves. So to say they came from humble means is maybe even an understatement. Right. Um, but the fact that he excelled and decided to move to the big city at that time, which was El Paso, Texas, to go seek out higher education and make for a better life, um, I think says a lot about who he was. And, you know, he was... Very soft-spoken, but had enormous amounts of presence and stature. And those summers with him in El Paso were just magical. Your mother uh, was different in some ways. She had a catering business, uh, Mm -hmm. packed you in a van in 1984, drove to New York. Mm -hmm. Uh, And she had an interesting way of, of making. She talked about getting to know the right people, giving parties. Tell us a little bit about her. Yeah. You know, my mom has always been someone that is extremely ambitious and very, very focused on what her goals are and what she wants to get accomplished. She always wanted to have her name in lights. So I think she started cultivating her love for food at the ranch and started to think, you know what? People are interested in our food. They're interested in my story. And she knew better enough to get the most influential people in a room and have them remember her name. That's what she would always say to us. Hmm. And um, and that's the still that's still the advice I give to young people nowadays who want to get their name out there. You know, make a short list of people that are movers and shakers in the industry. You know, send them some food or invite them over to your house and cook for them, and ingratiate yourself to them. And then that's how you'll start to you'll start to be known. So there's a point in your book I really like. You were filming. Uh, it was in Oaxaca. It was Dia de los Muertos. You, at night, climbed up a hill with some mm. camera equipment. And it wasn't so much about the food, 
but it was the notion that they came to you at the time that the dead, the people who have passed, are, are still with us. Absolutely. You know, I think part of being Mexican and growing up that way is that, you know, I'm very clear in the book that uh, death is not a somber occasion. It's, it's something to be celebrated. So going and rediscovering this chapter of my culture in, in Oaxaca and understanding that it's okay, you know, to to have someone go and they're going to still be with you and then you can hang on to the best parts of them. I thought that was something so insightful and very provocative for me at a time when, you know, I wasn't necessarily really developed yet. Well, you recount in in painful detail <laughs> those years when you're trying to get your act together. And you, yep. you, at 16, you go down and, and cook for Chef Prudhomme. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there were a couple great stories. You you made a, a vinegar badly. Uh, but but I love I love it when you were messing up and and the chef came up and said what's her name? I yep. just you want to tell that yep. story? That's a great story. Yeah, well I think if if we're talking a little bit about death being a reoccurring theme, I think me and my pursuit of women throughout my life <laughs> is also another recurring theme. Anytime I ever really got distracted was because I was chasing a girl, and in this case. You know, this is pre-cell phones, pre-all of that. So you would essentially meet somebody on the street and you would say, look, I will meet you here at the same time tomorrow when I get done. And uh, maybe we can carry on getting to know each other better or whatever. And I was very excited to see this young girl that I'd met the day prior. And I circumvented fixing a sauce or a vinegar to go and see this girl on time. I wanted to be prompt because I didn't want that opportunity to get away from me. So... Chef Paul caught me on my BS. He made me do it over again, and he knew the motivation was trying to go see a girl. So from that moment on, I never took a shortcut in the kitchen ever again. It, it give us some idea of what that's what that work is like, because for someone who's never worked in a kitchen, the hours and the, the amount of prep—I mm. mean, it's brutal. You're, you're opening shrimp all day. You're you're chopping onions. G- give us some sense of what that's like. Yeah, I mean, for anybody that wants to get into our industry and understand it, it's not a glamorous one, to say the least. You're going to be asked to do menial tasks. You're going to be asked to do things that seem repetitive and redundant. But I I can say wholeheartedly there's a reason behind all of that. I loved it. I thought the pressure of the kitchen and being part of this group of people that were misfits and, and, and sort of this pirate crew, I thought it was so cool. And I never shied away from hard work. So for me, it, it, it seemed like something completely natural. But it's, it's tough, and not, it's not for everybody. So tell me about your restaurant, Johnny Sanchez. Tell me about your food. We know where you came from in terms of food, but where are you now in terms of how you cook? Yeah. You know, when I was a younger chef in, in my early, mid-20s, I had this, this grandiose ideas of maybe reinterpreting Mexican cuisine, like very much what uh, Enrique Olivera is doing at Cosme and, you know, all these really sort of avant-garde Mexican chefs who have made the trip north of the border and setting up shop here in the States. And then, you know, kind of went and started feeling comfortable in my own lane and understanding, you know, I came up with some really iconic dishes that really spoke to my style. And then as I started to accumulate this following and have this repertoire of dishes, I started to understand that, you know what, it's not about trying to create something new every night and try to push the creative envelope necessarily. you got to remember that you're a businessman as well. So I think Johnny Sanchez, I wanted this restaurant to be a Mexican restaurant 
that celebrated Louisiana ingredients. But it's not a fusion restaurant. So we're not putting a Louisiana dish right next to a Mexican dish. So that's really the essence of the restaurant. It's fun. It's vibrant. You know, we have a strong emphasis on tacos. But coming back to full circle, like, you know, I talked about a little bit of that idea of having big kind of elegant Mexican food. And now I'm, I'm more attracted to, like, my grandmother's cooking and bringing it full circle. Yeah, it's, it's sort of, I guess, early on in your career, you're going somewhere, but you're not there. Mm-hmm. And as you get older, you've actually get there and you like where you are. Is that a fair comment? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, to be honest, I never thought where I am now and all the different things that, that I've been very blessed to do was going to be a result of just cooking. You know, my dream always was to have my own restaurant, be the captain of my own ship and be able to cook the food that, that spoke to me. Now, you know, I'm I'm this Latino representative of every cook in the kitchen in America. You know, I can't tell you how many times I go to restaurants in all my travels and inevitably, you know, somebody from Latino descent comes from the kitchen and says, can I get a photograph? Hmm. Can I talk to you? You know, because you represent us. So now the message and the mission has changed so much from when I started. Uh Books have been written recently about the end of the second American restaurant revolution. And now people say, gee, you know, it's gotten so expensive and it's hard to find good people. And uh, mm-hmm. it's just a hard, hard business. Uh, what do you say to that? <laughs> I mean, we can do a whole other podcast just on this. But um, um, I remember R.W. Apple, you know, the great right. the great writer for the Times. And, you know, he would, he said something very funny. He was like... You know, you never met bigger complainers than restaurateurs, hmm. you know, or chefs. We're not busy because it's Rosh Hashanah or, or, or whatever. Hmm. You know what I mean? It's like we have the marathon. And he said, just cook delicious food and people will come. But, you know, the biggest shift I saw on just, you know, when I started out, you can go to, you know, a realtor and see a fledgling restaurant that had what you would call FF&E, furniture, fixtures, and equipment. And you would have all these nuts and bolts already in the restaurant, and you you can make your own little sort of world happen. But now the problem is that those restaurants that once were were restaurants are being demolished and turned into a Chase Bank or turned into a Dwayne Reed Pharmacy. So if you're a young cook that wants to strike out on your own, you need enormous capital and resource. And isn't the restaurant business a fairly, you know, quote-unquote low-margin business? Isn't it kind of hard to get your nut back? with that kind of investment? Yeah, it's extremely difficult because what's happened is a corporatization of restaurants. So now you have big restaurant groups taking over the little guys and, you know, at, at your best, at your best, you're taking 6% profit home in your pocket. You know what I mean? It really is a passion project. It's not something that you can necessarily get rich at very quickly. So... You've been enormously successful. You had a hard start, like a lot of people have in this industry. Uh, what's next? Well, we're going to continue to cultivate the Aron Sanchez Scholarship, which is my nonprofit, my opportunity to plant seeds for the for the next crop of, of Latino chefs that really want to carry the torch. I guess the next project that I'm very excited about, really sort of wanting to do, is maybe like a food and wine festival that's featured just Latino talent. So bringing those cooks Hmm. from Oaxaca 
up to the states and giving them the platform that they deserve and really bringing in those those very specific, very cultural dishes that need to be known about. So I really want to bring that to the masses. The co-host of this show is, as you know, Sarah Moulton. And, of course. Uh, you had a great line about Sarah. You were thrilled to meet her years ago. You said, in fact, Sarah could have been your mom if your mom was mm-hmm. a food TV star and one of the most important professionals of her generation. So I, I was kind of touched by that because uh, you recognized how important she's been in the food world. Absolutely. I, I hold her in the same esteem as someone like Alice Waters, a Nancy Silverton, of my mom, these very, very iconic women that really change the way people think and feel about food. And Sarah is somebody that always, since I was young, always really just brought me into her warmth. Right. You know, she is just, her presence and her humbleness and her unbelievable ability to make things taste delicious has always been a huge source of inspiration. And, you know, women feature so prominently in this book, all these women who have played such pivotal roles in my life. Aaron, it's been uh, a real pleasure having you on Milk Street. Thank you. You are a scholar and a gentleman, and I appreciate the time <laughs> and interest. Thank you so much. That was Chef Aaron Sanchez. His memoir is Where I Come From, Life Lessons from a Latino Chef. You know, avoiding shortcuts is Aaron Sanchez's most important life lesson. There simply is no substitute for hard work. But that phrase, hard work, is often misunderstood. It's really not your job or your kids or your chores. It's what you choose to do beyond the routine. It's what pushes you above and beyond. Margaret Mead once said, I learned the value of hard work by working hard. That's not just good advice for a chef. It's good advice for life. It's time to chat with Lynn Clark about this week's recipe, Norwegian salmon. Lynn, how are you? I'm great, Chris. You know, one of our editors just got back from Oslo, not me. just like to point that out. Uh, and he had a dish, salmon, that was fabulous and incredibly simple. Now, we've done salmon a dozen different ways over the years, but this was better, as I said, simpler. It's salted and then cooked for just six or seven minutes. So we brought the recipe back. How did we get started? So the salt is the key here. We took a two-pound center-cut piece of salmon. We rubbed together some kosher salt with some fresh dill, and we rub that in our hands just to kind of break down the dill. Dill is pretty delicate, so you can do that by hand. And coat the fish with the salt mixture and put it in the refrigerator for about an hour. And that denatured the protein, which means it tightened up the protein of the fish. So when you tasted it side by side with a piece that was not salted, the piece that was salted was firmer, had a much better texture. It was really very noticeable. Right, which kind of allows you to cook it a little bit less. So this goes in a 350 oven. It cooks for a little over 10 minutes because it's a pretty big piece of salmon. And then we take it out of the oven and cover it with foil, tent it with foil to lock in some of that heat to continue cooking for about eight more minutes. And is that it? Is it served with a sauce of any kind or you're done? It's really super simple and delicious. We serve it with some extra fresh dill some lemon wedges, and some really great quick pickled cucumbers. The balance between the fatty fish and these tangy cucumbers is really 
something I'd never thought of, but it, it works so well. So this goes into the category of old dog new tricks, which is there is a better way to cook salmon. <laughs> exactly. So Norwegian salmon, it's salted, it sits, uh, goes into an oven for about 10 minutes, and it has a lovely flavor, and the dill also goes great with it. Thank you. You're welcome, Chris. You can get this recipe for Norwegian salmon at MilkStreetRadio.com. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Coming up, Dan Pashman makes a case for picky eaters. We'll be right back. This is Christopher Kimball. You may have heard that we just started running international culinary tours. And one trip I am particularly excited about is Istanbul, which is based in part on my recent visit. Along with our partners at Culinary Backstreet's, we put together an itinerary that goes way beyond the Grand Bazaar. This May, we'll visit local neighborhood markets, take a sail up the Bosporus, and harvest vegetables from farms in the city's ancient moats. You'll sample Turkish cheeses, flatbreads, pistachios, pomegranate molasses, and olive oil. And since this is, in fact, a Milk Street trip, you'll use those ingredients in hands-on cooking classes with local families and chefs. There are just three spots left on our May trip, so visit... 177milkstreet.com slash tours. That's 177milkstreet.com slash tours to claim your spot. Plus, listeners to our radio show save 5% with code Istanbul. This is Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Next up, Sarah Moult and I will be taking a few more of your cooking questions. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hello, this is Ashley from Ohio. How are you? I am doing wonderful. I'm so excited to talk with you two today. Well, let's see if we can help you. So uh, what's the problem? So my mom and I have had this family recipe for pumpkin rolls since I can remember. But the problem that we come across every year is cracking. And I've tried so many different solutions, and I just can't figure out how to get it to stop cracking when I unroll it to put the cream back inside. So I was wondering if you had any advice. So we're talking about a cake roll here, right? Yes, a cake roll. Do you try to roll it up pretty much soon as it comes out of the oven, or do you let it sit first? I used to let it sit, and that was the first solution I tried. So I will bake it for about 15 minutes, and then I pull it out, and I've started to, I used to flip it, but now I don't even flip it out. I just roll it right in that parchment, and then I let it cool. Okay, check. Number two. You're using all-purpose flour or cake flour? I've used all-purpose flour. You might try cake flour because most cake rolls often call for cake flour because it's lower gluten and might be more Mm -hmm. flexible and easier to roll. okay. The last is you might add an extra egg or so. Eggs will make a more pliable cake roll, less prone to cracking because there's more fat in it. And go to cake flour and that might... I mean, I love cake rolls, and uh, you're right. This is a little tricky, but if you do those two things, you're doing the right thing by rolling it up right away. But cake flour mm-hmm. and add an egg. Sarah? I don't know what's wrong here, but I completely agree. What? I know. You're right. Stop the presses. <laughs> we have agreement here at Milk Street. Hey, actually, you've made us this agree. Thank you. Thank you. Um, we try that, but it sounds like a great sounds yummy. recipe. Yeah. Mm, what's the filling? Oh, yeah. Um, I do a cream cheese powdered sugar filling inside, and it's so good, mm. and it tastes great, but now I want it to look as great as it tastes. I hear mm. you. Well, hopefully that'll work. Will you let us know? 
Yes, I can't wait to try it. It'll taste good either way, so I will happily make more. Okay, okay good. Take care. Yes. Bye-bye. You too. Thank Thanks you. Thanks for calling. This is Milk Street Radio. If you have a cooking question, we may, in fact, have the answer. Give us a ring, 855-426-9843. That's 855-426-9843. Or email us at questions at MillStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, Chris. This is Elizabeth from Gainesville, Florida. How can we help you? I was calling with a question about keeping curry leaf. I got some fresh curry leaf at a farmer's market nearby. And it was far more than I could use in a week or two of cooking. And I was wondering if you guys had any suggestions about methods. Should I freeze them raw? Should I blanch them? Should I puree them in oil like I would with fresh herbs? This will be the shortest phone call in Milk Street history. Freeze them. No, you just freeze them. Put them in a bag and freeze them. They freeze nicely. Yeah, that's really easy. I mean, what are you going to do with them once you take them out of the freezer? I like doing a lot of Indian cooking, and uh-huh. that's an ingredient that's often called for but kind of hard yep. to find. So I yep. figured that if I just had them in my freezer, I could take them out and use whenever. So I already made a lamb curry and a vegetable korma with them mm. when they were fresh. That sounds really good. The only other thing we do is make a tarka out of it, which means an oil infused with spices or herbs. So put oil in oh. a pan, heat it up just for a few minutes with some of the curry leaves and mustard seeds, other spices. Uh, strain it out, and now you have a flavored oil, and that's used on the food just before you serve it, sort of a last-minute addition. Finishing addition. And that would be great with curry leaves. That would be terrific. Can we just pause for a second for those people who don't know, and I know Elizabeth does, that curry leaves have nothing to do with the spice mix curry. They have their own unique flavor. It's uh, sort of fresh and a little citrusy even. Kind of like me, I have my own <laughs> Your fresh, fresh and citrusy <laughs> personality. Um, and it's a cool ingredient. They also taste better than they smell. That's interesting. It's like stinky right, cheese. They, they smell a little musty, I think. Mm. They're strong. Years ago, I was at the San Francisco Chronicle, and they were doing a durian tasting, and I had the misfortune of being there. And they all said, you know, it tastes much better than it smells. It smells like a sewer. And I thought it actually tasted just like a sewer, too. Did you really? <laughs> I think there are some durian that are better than others. Yeah. It's a little bit like, well, asafoetida also has a very yes. strong aroma that is not how it comes you off. You want to tell people what that is? It's sort of a resinous spice that you use in cooking that I think maybe— In place of garlic and onion. Somebody yeah. equated it, I think, well, it has umami, but it's it's funky to the smell, yes. That's pretty cool. You can buy fresh curry leaves at the market. Yeah, yeah. that's really great. All right, Elizabeth. Okay. Um, yeah, just freeze them. No problem. All right. Thank All right. you. Take that care. was easy. Thank yep. you so much. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. This is Mill Street Radio. Now it's time for some culinary wisdom from one of our listeners. Hi, my name is Lindsay, and here's my tip. I use tamarind concentrate, which you can find in an Indian or Asian grocery store, to braise meat. It's really great with tomatoes and just add a couple of tablespoons of tamarind um, while braising the meat and it adds a really nice sharp tang like a hint of a molassesy flavor. If you'd like to share your own cooking tip on Milk Street Radio, please go to 177milkstreet.com slash radio tips. Next up, it's regular contributor Dan Pashman. Dan, how are you? I'm good, Chris. You sound good. How old are your young ones now, Chris? My son is a year and nine months, uh, Oliver, 
This is a pop quiz. I'm just testing to see if you know. It has nothing to do with our segment, And, and do I know their names? <laughs> yeah. And Ricky is just turned nine months. Okay. So two and a half and nine months. So is the two-and-a-half-year-old starting to exhibit signs of picky eating? No. Uh, he's always been a picky eater. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, was, it wasn't a development issue. It was just born with – no, he won't even – he'll just reject it out of hand. If it comes within three feet of him and it doesn't look right, right? No, not happening. And um, were your other kids? Like, like, is picky eating something that has frustrated you with, with other children of yours? Well, I, I have six kids, and I, I have to say, none of them are particularly adventurous eaters. I'd say my my second oldest daughter was actually a professional baker for a while, and and, and she's she's quite adventurous. We we took a trip years ago to Morocco, and. She's the one who ate the calf's brain. Right. right. <laughs> so so I, I would say out of six so far, I have one. Okay. So I, I bring this up, Chris, because, you know, I, I have two kids, nine-year-old Becky and six-and-a-half-year-old Emily, and they are, they're very different from each other. But, you know, as a parent of young kids, as I'm sure you know, a lot of parents get stressed about picky eating. Uh, well, I, I actually, I have to say, just to interject Please. here, I never did. I, my, my attitude was we cook one dinner. I mean, unless they're two years old, but once they're of an age, six or seven, we cook one dinner. If you don't like it, have fruit. We always had apples and pears, et cetera, in the house. And you could have fruit for dinner or have what we're having for dinner, but there wasn't, I didn't worry that they'd starve to death. Uh, And if the children were not happy with those two choices, who had to deal with the brunt of that situation? There was no situation. So that that (laughs) worked every time. There were two choices. Well, I, I, yeah, I, I don't believe in—we're not catering five different dinners every night. Right. I mean, the, the, the idea of, of catering, unless there's a nut allergy or something, of course, uh, is a fairly modern notion. Back in the day, there was always a dinner, right? Right. No, for sure. I mean, I sort of have a lifelong dream to be a short-order cook. I, I like the idea of, like, cranking out a bunch of different stuff in the kitchen, so I actually don't mind it, you know, like on the weekends when I have the time. But I know that a lot of parents get stressed about picky eating kids. And so it's something that I've been exploring recently, and I found, I've learned a couple of very interesting facts. Okay. First of all, by some estimates, half of all kids are picky eaters, in particular between the ages of three and six. And so it, if it's half, does that even mean that they're picky, or does that just mean that they're normal? And, and there's research that it may take 30 or 40 tastes of a food for a child to acquire a taste for it and learn to like it. I think often what happens is, you know, a kid tries something once or twice, they don't like it, and the parent says, oh, we'll scratch that off the list. I mean, I, did, I would not bite into a plain tomato until I was about 35. <laughs> this, is, this is a very deep, dark secret, Dave. Are you sure you want to, I'm letting it, want to put that out of the airwaves? I to that point in our relationship, Chris, where I'm comfortable enough sharing this with you. I, I won't tell anybody. <laughs> so, so, so you're suggesting that parents, in order to overcome picky eating— keep recycling those items that have been rejected initially because well, they might actually... The, the, yes. First of all, keep coming back to certain things, trying them over and over again. It may, it may take a long time. That, that, that makes sense. But, yeah. but the larger note here is, first of all, relax. Yes. As long as the doctor says that your child is getting enough nourishment and growing appropriately, there's really nothing for you to worry about. It's very common for kids to have a narrow range of things they like to eat when they're young. And in fact, think about it, Chris, it makes good evolutionary sense. I mean, you know, the kids who are frolicking through the woods and just eating whatever berry dropped in front of them, those kids weren't going to last very long. The, the, the kids who are more, more naturally a little bit suspicious of new, of new and unfamiliar foods and only ate the things that they knew they liked and that were safe, those kids were more likely to survive and thrive. That's true. That's probably true. 
But the other thing that I've been thinking a lot about, Chris, and I'd like to get your take on it, is I know that parents, you may not feel this way, Chris, because I know you are immune to the judgment of others. But <laughs> some some parents feel judged that, that there's an idea that they're doing something wrong if their kids don't eat all different things. And and by the flip side, there seems to be this idea that, like, you know, I, I will see parents whose kids eat many different things kind of bragging about it as if they've somehow, like, succeeded as parents. Here's my take on parenting. I don't think you can really take credit or blame. I mean, unless you do something extraordinarily wonderful or, or stupid for the success or failure of your kids. I, I think you have to accept the kids the way they are, accept yourself the way you are. And if they become picky eaters, well, they certainly have an opportunity to not do that. I think you put in front of them as many different things as possible and, and just relax. I mean, they're, they're going to turn out, you know, at the end of the day. Well, and that, that's the interesting thing about picky eating. I mean, I have two kids, same two parents, raised in the same household, you know, with the same food being served. One of them will eat just about anything you put in front of her. One of them only yeah. wants mac and cheese. Sure. It's not your fault, Dan. Thank you, Chris. This, is, this has been a great session. Dan, repeat after me. It's not my fault. It's not my fault. This is good turning into Goodwill Hunting. <laughs> Finally, I'm giving Dan Pashman advice. Dan Pashman, thank you so much. Uh, love your kids, and don't worry about the fact they may be picky eaters, right? Take That's care. right. Thanks, Chris. That was Dan Pashman of The Sporkful. Earlier in the show, I spoke with Robert Simonson, author of The Martini Cocktail, and he made me think of the famous Harry Craddock. He was the bartender at London's Savoy Hotel in the 1920s. He also authored the famous Savoy cocktail book with over 700 recipes, which included the bunny hug, a mix of whiskey, gin, and absinthe. Craddock quipped about that drink, quote, it should immediately be poured down the drain before it's too late. Those, I guess, were the days when cocktails and humor went together. You know, Nick Charles, the thin man and also cocktail jokester, was once asked by his on-screen wife, Nora, if he was packing. As he downed yet another martini, he said, quote, Yes, dear, I'm just packing away this liquor. Now that's my idea of adult entertainment. That's it for today. If you tuned in too late or just want to listen again, you can download and subscribe to Milk Street Radio wherever you find your podcasts. To learn more about Milk Street, please go to 177milkstreet.com. There you can download each week's recipe, watch the new season of our television show, browse our online store, or order our latest cookbook, The New Rules, Recipes That Will Change the Way You Cook. You can also find us on Facebook at Christopher Kimball's Milk Street and on Instagram and Twitter at 177 Milk Street. We'll be back next week, and thanks, as always, for listening. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with WGBH, Executive producer, Melissa Baldino. Senior audio editor, Melissa Allison. Producer, Annie Sinzabaugh. Associate producer, Jackie Nowak. Production assistant, Stephanie Cohn. And production help from Debbie Paddock. Senior audio engineer, David Goodman. Additional editing from Vicki Merrick, Sydney Lewis, and Samantha Brown. And audio mixing from Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Theme music by Chubop Crew. Additional music by George Brennell Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX. Mm-hmm.